Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's spring, and what better way to put a spring in your step than by buying some comfy knickers or pants? That is how it works, right? I mean, when I was a kid, if you bought new trainers and everyone said you'd be able to run faster, so I guess if you buy new pants, then you might be able to put a spring in your... Oh, no, bum. Wait, that's... Wait, okay, that's wrong. Yes, anyway, uh, while we all know the wonderful British boxers do an incredible range of things to sleep in, it's now nearly sunny outside again, you know, in that way where it's also a bit cold, but you're still going to need a new T-shirt, hoodie, or new pants to go and try it in before you then have to go back inside and get your jacket. And British boxers have a brilliant range of all of those things, as well as pyjamas that you're probably still going to need for work until at least 2023. British boxers are an independent, ethically excellent lot who make actually nice lounge and casual wear that you can wear inside or outside, but, you know, with shoes on as well because you're sensible. Head to British-Boxers.com and use the code PARPOLBRO10 and you'll get 10% off whatever you order. You might accuse me of being in the pockets of Big Pyjama and I'd say, no, actually, I'll take a medium and my pockets have an old tissue in because that's tradition. It's just always there. I don't even know where it's come from. It's really strange. It's every... Pajama pockets. Always not. This week's show is dedicated to the memory of the brilliantly talented uh, sweary idiot Katie Coxall, aka Mushy Bees. Um, it was not only a pal, but did many, many brilliant, brilliant bits of artwork uh, and brilliant comedy sets too. Um, and amongst all of that, uh, she did the artwork for this here podcast that you know so well. Um, Katie passed away last week, far, far too young, because cancer is a piece of shit. So um, this show and every swear in it this week is for them, as I'm pretty sure that's what they would have wanted. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that doesn't just tell you what the election results mean, but also why the election results mean. And it's because if you're the sort of person who listens to this show, they're always mean and we should probably all live in Finland. I'm Tina Duya, but this week as the Queen's speech is set to include a need for voters to have photo ID for elections, well that's easy for her to say, as all she'll have to do is show a stamp or a coin. I dispute the idea that Her Majesty's official opposition, the Labour Party, have lost touch with ordinary working people, as after the past year, what could represent us more than an entire party that screams anxiety and personality disorders, scrabbling aimlessly for some clue as to what to do next, and a complete inability to communicate? According to Labour leader and Philips One Blade for face trimming, edging and shaving, QP2520, Keir Starmer, the most sensible way you can react to election losses is by saying you'll take full responsibility before sacking several members of your shadow cabinet instead. 
I suppose he is just trying to appeal to conservative voters, and what do they love more than someone who says they'll be accountable before dumping the blame on everyone beneath them? A shadow cabinet reshuffle that was more of a confused violent shaking followed a stream of half-hearted platitudes and sentences that had words in them but little else. Covid restricted the Labour Party from setting out our vision. Did it? How? Have they not heard of Zoom like the rest of us had? Did it have an automatic turn visions offsetting? I hadn't noticed that before. I didn't realise Covid affected vision. I thought it was all in the lungs. Unless Labour's vision was to lick everyone's faces or only deliver all policies by whispering them directly into people's ears, this just feels a bit like they haven't really tried. Oh, we definitely have a vision, but you just don't know it. It goes to another school. Then, of course, the other excuse is it was all the fault of the previous party leader and human role Jeremy Corbyn, who has selfishly stayed as ex-leader for over a year now and just won't stop. It's very hard to know what Labour's policies this past year have been, apart from occasional calls to close zoos or not vote on things to show that they don't support them or do, or, well, no one's really sure. But the one slogan they have had is, under new management. So if they haven't even managed to convey that bit, they've really failed. Oh, wait, maybe they forgot to change their name on Zoom so it still kept coming up as Jezza. Now I get it. MP for Horton and Sunderland South and Ursa from Superman 2, Bridget Phillipson, insisted that things were different this time because she wasn't being chased off doorsteps like the last election. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's to do with social distancing, Bridget. Another great line, and by great I mean more hollow than a tome of Nadine Dorry's wise thoughts, was We have changed, but we need to go further. Brilliant, so you've changed and that lost you votes, and the best thing now is to change more. Again, maybe this is just a drive for Conservative voters who are big fans of seeing failed ideas get pushed forward regardless of the blatant damage they cause. The difference is, though, the Conservatives always pretend they've done well, even when they haven't, a tactic absolutely unheard of in Labour. Instead, much like the weird insistence that actually a global financial crash was entirely their fault and no one else's, despite it also being reported that their successive leaders have been useless or unable to even eat a sandwich, Labour's instinct is just to say that things were much worse than they actually are. Labour did, of course, lose Hartlepool to the Conservatives for a myriad of reasons, including not so much parachuting, but, but catapulting in a candidate that was less suited to the area and its needs than getting a camel to manage a branch of Iceland. Voters apparently voted for change, but I suppose it's entirely up to an area whether that's changes for the worst or not. But actually, looking at the rest of the results in England, the majority of the mayor elections went in Labour's way, with what if Burt from Sesame Street wore glasses, Andy Burnham, being re-elected with a larger share of the vote than last time, showing that maybe, just maybe, standing up to the government is popular, rather than backing them most days and occasionally thinking that looking at wallpaper might bring them down. Duplo figure Sadiq Khan was re-elected as London Mayor, even though Conservative candidate and stunt double for the Stargate TV series Sean Bailey got more votes than expected, despite not even understanding what areas to campaign in, what being a mayor actually means or where he is at any given time. It was only really the West Midlands mayoral election where Conservative and Bill Gates' skeleton, Andy Street, was re-elected, but that is what happens when the candidate you run against them is sad P. Liam Byrne, who's most well known for leaving the note there is no money at the Treasury for the incoming Conservative government in 2010. Well, unfortunately for Liam, this time there was also no votes. Many Labour councils, such as Preston, that have been adopting community wealth-building schemes and Rochdale that's been regenerating the town with cooperative heritage schemes, they all kept their seats, while councils in areas like Kent, Sussex and Cambridgeshire that have been traditionally more blue than a Monday in January during lockdown have now gone very red like they were almost embarrassed about their past voting. 
Welsh Labour will now remain in power in the Senate for another five years, winning exactly half of all seats, holding off the Conservatives in many areas and reclaiming Ronda from Plaid Cymru too. Leader in cartoon tortoise Mark Drayford said he promises to be radical and ambitious, which I think means he's going to take up surfing. Yet, despite all of this, various Labour politicians have been overexcited to get back on the news in order to say just how shit their party are and then name all the wrong reasons. Labour Lord and harmless Nosferatu Andrew Adonis has said Starmer needs to resign as leader, which could seem fair considering this time Labour have lost eight councils and 326 council seats as well as a by-election and when Labour under Corbyn in 2016 lost just 18 councils, there was a leadership contest to oust him. So, in comparison, Starmer should probably not just resign but personally apologise to everyone and then walk naked down the high street as someone rings a bell and shouts, SHAME! But then you hear Adonis' point of view, and it's only because he thinks withered Eddie the Head, Tony Blair, should return, which would be like trying to appeal to people who say a meal is too salty for them by making them eat it in the sea. Former frontbencher MP and duck that has walked into a telegraph poll, Khalid Mahmood, warned that Labour had been taken over by woke social media warriors from London, which isn't true or they'd actually have been able to get a message out as to what their vision was. Aside from the stupid notion that London, with the highest rate of child poverty in England, is actually paved with gold and everyone in it, including myself, just spends every day snorting avocados while paying our rent three times over just for fun, it's also a bizarre attack to say that a solution to Labour's issue of not getting enough votes is to stop appealing to some of the people who do vote for them. Brilliant idea. Why don't they just keep insulting every possible area of society until they can finally focus all their efforts on the pet vote or ghosts, which actually I suppose is what Tony Blair would be very good at, to be fair. So, of course, that's the only opinion Starmer's listening to, and he just keeps repeating that Labour has lost the trust of the working people, which isn't surprising as his party is mostly broken. Jobs and work is the party's new focus, hopefully firstly for all their candidates that have now lost their seats and are in need of some due to being part of a group whose leadership thinks they should get all their policies from a kid's first words book. What's the next strategy, Keir? Bus and train, then cat and dog, followed by hat and shoes? You can't just say words and hope people understand what your stance is on them. The cabinet reshuffle is equally as confusing. After losing a by-election and council seats in the North East, Starmer's initial reaction was to sack Northern Working Class MP and Bob's Burgers extra Angela Rayner as National Campaign Coordinator until everyone said how stupid that was and she was moved to be Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy and Shadow Secretary for the State of the Future of Work. The meaning of which we're yet to entirely find out, but while it's an area that needs focusing on, chances are high she'll just have to shout jobs and work at passers-by until some magically appear. Matchstick Annalise Dodds, who actually knew about economics, has been replaced as Shadow Chancellor by that parent you'd actively pick your kid up late from school to avoid seeing, Rachel Reeves, who in 2013 boasted that Labour would cut benefits even more than the Conservatives. So, I guess this is the battle plan now. Take on the government by also putting people in roles they're completely unsuitable for and outmean them on every level. No wonder they've chosen Slap Baby West Streeting to be Minister for Child Poverty, so I guess they'll be pledging to increase that in the next manifesto too. But will any of that make a difference? A Channel 4 poll said the main reason people didn't vote for Labour this time is Keir Starmer and his lack of policies, so I suppose he's embraced true centrism by not standing for anything at all and being disliked by left and right-wing voters equally. Is it possible to send a whole party to therapy?
In Scotland, the SNP won a fourth consecutive win with 64 MSP seats, just one short of a majority in Holyrood, but with the Scottish Greens winning eight, that's still more votes for independent supporting parties than against. First Minister and star of the Lego movie 1 and 2, Nicola Sturgeon, told the Prime Minister and hassled wicker basket Boris Johnson that another referendum is a matter of when, not if. That when isn't really a definitive enough term for Johnson, is it? When considering how many times he changed date for Brexit and still said that he could have it on time. So from the referendum, he could easily say it will happen in the future and insist he kept his promise by not allowing one till 2055. Boris Johnson invited Sturgeon and Mark Drayford to Downing Street, as well as whoever's going to be First Minister in Northern Ireland, for a union summit, and is calling them all Team UK, like they're on The Apprentice and everyone wants to dob in the one in charge, as he's a selfish, stupid fuckwit that causes everything to fail. The Prime Minister says the UK is best served when they all work together, which must be why we've had a one-star on TripAdvisor quality, since he ignored them over Brexit concerns. During the last day of election campaigning, Sturgeon was confronted by Britain First Deputy Leader and why inbreeding is bad, Jada Frunson, and the First Minister told her bluntly that she's a racist, a fascist and the south side of Glasgow would reject her, which they did, with Frunson getting only 46 votes. Still, considering Britain First's whole racist stick is take our country back and Frunson was born in Germany, you'd think she'd be super pleased Glaswegians voted for her to fuck right off. The Green Party of England and Wales gained 80 council seats and are now the joint largest party in Bristol, which is nice as it had always felt hypocritical in past elections that they wasted so much energy without getting anywhere. Disillusionment in Labour is one reason voters went green, but also climate change, which is damaging for the planet, but for Greens we can see it also directly causes rising seat levels. Just why do the Conservatives keep winning elections, ask all the same political journalists who've spent the past 10 years refusing to criticise them or adding context to show that yes, it is them being in government for a decade that's ruined everything. Well, in part they win because of the response to Covid, which has only recently been okay, but with the past year being largely the same day over and over again, it's easy to forget that 150,000 people died and the government gave all their contracts to friends when hey, you can go to the pub now. All the incumbents won, Labour in Wales, SNP in Scotland, and it turns out that guiding your country through a crisis, or in the Conservatives' case, driving it blindly to Barnard Castle, does make people a tad wary of yet more change. But in the Conservatives' case, it's also to do with a voting system that works in their favour. I mean, in Harlow, they went 60% of the vote, but 92% of the seats, as though usurping democracy was on a three-for-two offer in the supermarket. And as the mayoral elections didn't work in their favour, the government are instead looking to change them from being a supplementary vote system in the future to first past the post. Because why respect the will of the people when that's so 2016 right now? The Queen's speech is happening this week and marks the new parliamentary year. Bespectacled sea cucumber Michael Gove will hand her Madge a bit of paper that says a lot of things the government say they'll do but probably won't and in red tells her to not read out the small print. Apart from voter ID, it's going to include a woman on a gold throne telling you you can't protest anymore, an environment bill that will be forgotten as soon as the conference is over and a bill on reforming the asylum system which the UN have already said is so damaging it'll risk Britain's global credibility which is news to me as I didn't think we had any left. Not a single European country has supported the plans of Home Secretary and woman with a personality based on what it's like to stub your toe, Pretty Patel. All her plans to deport so-called illegal migrants to safe countries, unaware that of course the UK would be a safe country too if it wasn't for the maniacal dangerous fuckhead in the Home Office. Patel has also announced fast-track immigration visas for winners of Oscars and Golden Globes, which seems like a massively shallow decision until you realise they'd fit right in with Tory ideology as they'll bring their own statues. The Queen's speech will also include the Animal Sentience Bill, which will give creatures with backbones the right to have their feelings recognised in law, so Matt Hancock must be gutted he's missed out again. 
What it won't include are the details of the Prime Minister's holiday to Mustique in 2019, paid for by Tory donors, which is now being investigated by the Common Standards Commissioner. They say it's because Johnson didn't correctly declare the trip, but I'm also hoping it's because they want to find out who was willing to make Johnson fuck off for two weeks and see if they'll do it again this time, but for much longer. I'm sure there'll be absolutely nothing suspicious about that holiday because as we know the government say they don't do suspicious things and so that means they don't. And just to make sure of that this week, Nigel Boardman, who is indeed a man on a board for the Department of Business and legit has one of the scariest faces I've ever seen. Google him, go on, Google him. Ugh, I mean, ugh, Jesus. He was given a job by his friend the Prime Minister to say whether there was evidence of the Tories giving jobs to friends and he said that there wasn't. So that's obviously true. No one will care after next week anyway, as the Prime Minister has announced that hugs will be allowed from May the 17th, but only cautious short ones and not face-to-face, so you can all get butt-hugging people, which sadly for many who work in the government will be a step backwards from their usual ass-kissing. Household mixing will also be allowed, which is great news for amateur DJs and cocktail makers, and a travel corridor will open up to all those top holiday destinations you know and love, including South Georgia and the Sandwich Islands near Antarctica, which I suppose does fulfil the needs of all of us who've spent the past year thinking the government have made us want to get as far away from Britain as possible. Transport Minister Grant Shapps, a man with all the integrity of a broken magic eight ball, has said that the list is as limited as it is because we have to make sure other countries we connect with are safe. So I guess maybe it was some of their governments that declined being added just in case it would mean Pretty Patel would take it as an approval to unfairly deport people to them. One of the countries that's been approved is Israel, which is apparently safe, unless you're Palestinian, of course, as hundreds have been wounded in the lead-up to a planned march by Jewish nationalists for Jerusalem Day, when they celebrate the internationally illegal occupation of East Jerusalem. Israeli police tear-gassed and shot at worshippers in the Al-Asqa Mosque, while Palestinian families are set to be evicted from homes they've lived in for decades in the neighbourhoods nearby. The UN have told Israel to exercise maximum restraint and respect the right of freedom to peaceful assembly, but I worry that they'll just take that to mean of building they're going to put up over bulldozed homes. Still, at least Brits can travel there now for a holiday, right? In other news, after France threatened to cut power to Jersey as part of arguments about fishing rights in the Channel, many were shocked to find that Jersey had electricity in the first place. Why Boris Johnson leapt so quickly to the notorious tax haven's defence, we'll never know, but two Royal Navy ships were sent, causing many newspapers to hyperventilate with excitement about the possibility of a war with France, which is high up on their list of most patriotic things you can do after having sex with a flag and ordering chips in an Indian restaurant. But of course, we were never going to go to war with France, because that would require the Foreign Secretary knowing where it is first. Art subjects at university are to have funding cuts of 50%, but the government will soon regret that next time they tell the country to act responsibly and no one will know how. And lastly, Conservative MP and Square Ham Ben Bradley has been elected leader of Nottinghamshire County Council while also still being an MP, which feels all kind of wrong, but on the plus side that means he'll only have half the time to be shit as an MP if he's busy being shit as a council leader too. Hello, hello, Parpol Brods. Uh, how were election times round your way? Uh, my particular highlight of voting day was a man behind us in the queue for the polling station and he'd brought his, uh, must have been two-year-old daughter with him and was getting her to help him choose anyone but Khan or that bloody Tory one. Amazing. I'm really hoping she picked Count Binface, but I was also scared that she liked foxes and fucked it all up. Two-year-olds, uh, who knows. Anyway, um, I hope you got decent results where you are or at least uh, if you got terrible results are able to move somewhere better like the Moon or Alpha Centauri. I think those are the only places um, it was weird to be in a situation politically where I really, really don't want the Conservatives in anywhere, but I'm also so 
so nonplussed by Labour right now that I didn't feel breath by their losses. I don't get me wrong, I was very happy for Labour councils like Preston and Rochdale that were doing um, all what I talked about with Rianne Jones a couple of weeks ago, actually investing in the areas uh, in progressive ways. Also, uh, great news about Greens uh, gains and how Scotland and Wales um, went, we're doing our own little things, the rest of you can get fucked. Fair play. Um, I always liked that the United Kingdom was a little crew of countries, mostly so I could pretend I lived on an island where not everyone voted Conservative. But I do really feel now like, firstly, citizens of a country should be able to decide what happens to it and its future. And also that maybe Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland need to escape while they can, uh, followed by the North, then the Midlands and the South, and well, everywhere. And then perhaps the government could only be in charge of just whatever's left. Probably Surrey or something. No, even that went a bit red this time, didn't it? I don't know, maybe just that bit of grass outside Westminster. They could all sit there, couldn't they? And then the rest of us could just have a nice time. Got to dream, haven't you? Got to dream. I've actually done quite a lot of dreaming lately, um, for once, because as you probably hear by my jazzy, jazzy voice this week, I have had a truly grim head and chest cold, and I kept falling asleep on the sofa over the weekend. Much to the amazement of my uh, agent, uh, aka my daughter, who has never seen that happen before. Uh, she's never seen me pass out. She's done it loads. She's a champion at it. It was quite new for her to see uh, her dad absolutely pass out on the sofa. Um, it was probably grim. Uh, I feel like really full to the brim of the old snots yeah you you love that image um and i can't help but think it must be because i haven't had a cold in over a year thanks to mask wearing and just not seeing anyone at all so it felt like it was full force making up for that it was like a year's worth of cold in one go i did do a lateral test uh, that i sneezed out twice and it's definitely not the covid um so instead of just been making everyone feel very uneasy wherever i've gone by being full of coughs it's a really weird sort of power have to say in future i might do things like cough on the bus just to get extra space really clears the area for you um, so what I'm saying is a lot of coughs will be edited out of this week's show. Um, no, I won't do an outtake reel. You won't enjoy it. You might think you will, but you won't. It'll just be coughs, endless coughs. It'd be horrible. Suppose you could play it from your phone on the bus and get extra space. That might be useful. Okay, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Um, thanks this week to somebody and James for the Kofi donations. Totally fair that there's not been many of those lately as well. Um, as I understand, everyone uh, is broke. And now uh, you can spend money on things like getting a cider of pneumonia with your meal. Brilliant. Um, actually, next week you'll be able to be indoors, which will be, oh, God, I can't wait. I, I, want, I can't wait to either be indoors or just the weather to not be a dick. Anyway, um, but if you enjoy the show and you can afford to support me doing it as it takes up a silly amount of my life where I should really be trying to earn money after a year of absolutely none of that, then why not do even the price of a pack of stickers or a small bag of dried plums neither of which I have a clue about the cost of. Is, is dried plums even a thing? I don't know. What a snub, right? But even if you could donate that to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro uh, a monthly thing to the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or via the ACAST support button. That would be real swell. Um, two other things this week, one of which uh, is a sad thing, but the, the non-sad thing is that my brother Corinne, aka The Last Skeptic, um, who does the music to this show, he has another new single out. Um, he's got he's got several coming out over the next few months um, before a new album, but uh, please go listen to the brand new one if you like hip-hop. Uh, it's called Friend and Enemy. Um, it was also his birthday on Saturday, so you know me asking you to do that is basically the cheapest, least effort gift that I could give as an older sibling, and that is a pretty big gesture, so uh, pretty big deal. Go have a listen. Um, the other thing, which I sort of I mentioned uh, at the top of the show, uh, if you listened, uh, is that um, last week, you might remember I gave a shout out to my friend Katie Coxall, um, who, who, as I said at the top of the show, uh, did the artwork for this podcast and, and many other things. I've got several of her pictures in my house. Uh, she did brilliant t-shirts, did lots of designs for lots of comedians, websites. Um, she also did some very funny stand-up sets at various comedy gigs. Um 
Well, she she very sadly passed away from cancer last week, quicker than any of us expected, and it's been pretty upsetting for everyone who knew her. She was truly funny, superbly silly, and uh, as I, I regularly mention it, but she was just expert at swearing. So this week's episode is entirely dedicated to the memory of her brilliant self. Um, I understand that she passed away very peacefully and with her family by her side, so I guess there's not much more that you can ask for, and, and that was very nice not nice to hear I, I don't know I never know how to but it's, it's good it's good to hear that that was her, her last day was spent like that um anyway uh, at some point in the future there'll likely be a fundraiser selling some of her art to raise money for the hospice that she was in as per her request so I will give a shout on here when that happens and please do help out so rest in peace Katie you are already very sadly missed Okay, um, on this week's show, uh, there is a chat with James Montague, author of The Billionaires Club and 1312 Among the Ultras, both of which look at the politics and money behind the football industry, and I ask him all about that. Yes, football on this show. I know, I'm surprised too. And in the middle, you lucky people, is my analysis of the past weekend's election results. Don't get too excited now. No, you can be more excited than that, mate. No, please, like, please at least be a little bit excited. Just like, just, uh, just at least try, just pretend, just pretend for me. on. Oh, Ah, football, the beautiful game, which is why, like most beautiful things on earth, the super rich have chosen to make sure they buy it all up so no one else can use it before then destroying it. Just a couple of weeks ago, a breakaway football competition was announced called the European Super League, sounding like yet another franchise had jumped on the superhero bandwagon without a convincing origin story. It was meant to be for the top 20 European clubs. It was an unashamedly big US sports star money grab that would have caused teams in domestic leagues to lose out and make supporting any of the teams taking part even more pricey for fans. The idea seemed a lot like when Apple announced they're unveiling something special and then release an updated product that costs more than the last one but has less to it, is harder to use and mostly makes you wish you still had a CD player. But then something incredible happened and fans said nope to the European Super League and protested in a big way. This led to the six English clubs pulling out, followed by three European ones, and it took just two days for the entire thing to collapse, meaning it was even more pathetic than my DIY efforts. Ongoing protests have since taken place at Arsenal, Tottenham and just recently caused a Man U Liverpool game last week to be postponed, all in the name of calling for the billionaire owners to sell their stakes and return the clubs back to the people. So why am I telling you any of this on a politics podcast hosted by me, a man whose awareness of football is so limited, I still think the offside rule is to do with the camera catching a player at their least flattering angle. Well, because football, like many things people pretend are not, is political. Not just because Johnson was quick to condemn the Super League and say it amounted to a cartel, which must be awful for him as you can't have one of those in government and sport or, you know, they'll clash. But also because the money behind the biggest football clubs comes from oligarchs of the kind that have also bought up much of the property market and have many, many links to politicians. Saudi princes who are responsible for heinous human rights violations and buy a lot of our weapons and US billionaires who look like a rejected Portlandia character and they have little care for anything but their own profit. And the retaliation from fans against this has been the first steps in the sports version of actually taking back control, showing that protest does work and that public ownership might even be the way forward for footy too. This week I spoke to writer James Montague, who spent his career writing books about the relationship between football and politics. In particular, his book The Billionaires Club, released in 2017, looked at the super-rich who now own English football and pretty much spelled out that something like the European Super League would happen. And why? And James's latest book, 1312 Among the Ultras, looks at the most extreme political football fandom. So I spoke to James and I asked him to explain all about the takeover of football by the billionaire class, if the fans moving the goalposts was expected, if it can ever return to being a people's game, and if the European Super League will return with a four-hour Snyder Cup. 
Okay, not that last one. Anyway, it was fascinating talking to James, so I hope you enjoy. Here he is. Hi, James. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I think before anything else, um, I just want to ask you, like, is football political? Because I think a lot of people say, oh, it's a sport, it's a sport. And obviously there's politics of the game. But football itself, it's a, it's a pretty political area, isn't it? I mean, usually, I mean, for me, it's almost the most political area. I mean, my entire career has been spent kind of trying to tell political stories through football because it was so obvious to me that the two are connected. And usually when you when you find people who say, oh, sport and politics shouldn't be connected, it's because what they mean is their politics aren't being reflected in football. They don't like the politics that they're seeing reflected in football or sport in general. I mean, it's no different from from art, from music, from any other kind of cultural area. Politics bleeds into it. Politics, um, that, that, that art form, that cultural form is reflected is reflective of society and football is no different. And I think that one of the most important things to, to see is that football is kind of criminally under analyzed when it is, when you think about politics, because you can understand a lot. I mean, the last book I wrote one, three, one, two among the ultras, you know, a lot of people say ultras, they're hooligans. They, you know, what can they tell us about the world? You know, you go to Ukraine and you meet, uh, far right ultras who end up fighting with liberal activists in Maidan to topple a dictator. You go to Egypt and Cairo and you see that the ultra groups of Ahli and Zamalek end up playing a key role in the revolution in Tahrir Square. You go to Germany, the ultras there are fighting against, um, fighting to preserve the 50 plus one ownership structure there, which stops billionaire owners from taking over. You know, everywhere you go, I mean, there's, it's far left, it's far right, but football is reflective in many ways um, of the politics and the and the values of the people that, you know, go to the game, play the game and also kind of run the game. So it's the, 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 you, you can't separate them. It's like trying to separate, you know, sand from the beach. They're just, they're always, they're always going to be intertwined. Yeah, it's because that's what I was sort of asking, because a number of people seem surprised that the government intervened, uh, the British government intervened with the European Super League. Um but I, I suppose for someone like yourself who, who wrote about it in your book, The Billionaires Club, I, I'm guessing all of that was a bit inevitable. And I wondered if the plan for the European Super League was a surprise to you or if it's where you'd kind of felt that football had been heading for a long time and why why it happened now. I mean, it wasn't a surprise to me at all because this was the direction of travel that football's been going in. I mean, the, the talk of a European Super League, and by that, I mean the, the biggest the biggest teams in Europe feeling that they could get more money by breaking away and having a new type of competition, has been going on since the 1950s. You know, it gets mentioned every decade, uh, different teams, by the way, because different teams are the best teams. That You know, if you'd asked who should be in the European Super League 15 years ago, I mean, certainly Manchester City... Um, and Tottenham wouldn't be wouldn't be in that list, and maybe Tottenham, I suppose. But um, so this has been on 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 the radar f- for a long time. But what changed recently, and one it's one of the things I wrote about in my book, The Billionaires Club, is that football becomes a playground for the super rich, for the billionaire class, uh, and this changes in the way that the world economy changes, that wealth uh, accumulation changes, that the number of billionaires really after 1989, it's a really kind of pivotal moment. Uh, the fall of communism, it unleashes this kind of wealth generation machine, a lot of it kind of quite unseemly, especially in the former uh, Soviet republics. But there is this wealth and a lot of it finds its way into into football clubs. And suddenly, you know, if you look at the kind of profile of owners before the advent of the Premier League, 
it's, you know, local businessmen done good. Some of them quite shady, some of them not, but maybe they might make a little bit on the side here. Usually it's to advertise whatever business they're in. You know, also a lot of it's for reflected, reflective glory. When the billionaires come in, you know, their motivations are completely different and they completely change uh, the economics of the game. So in 2003, we have Roman Abramovich. I mean, I'm talking about English Premier League here because, I mean, you also have um, Berlusconi in Italy taking over AC Milan in the late 1980s, which also has a significant effect on how broadcasting revenues are connected to, to football and how the, how the game is marketed. But in terms of, you know, Roman Abramovich comes in and no one knows anything about him, but they know he's super rich, very young guy. And he absolutely transforms Chelsea to overnight, turns them almost into a European superpower. And everybody else is kind of scrambling around looking for their own billionaire that can compete. So it creates this arms race and it invites American billionaires in who mainly come from uh, sports markets where franchises are part of a closed cartel where you don't have promotion or relegation. NFL in particular, NBA, I mean, the rules are slightly different, but it's the same game. You own a franchise and that investment is protected. You share the spoils amongst this group and there's no way in unless you've got enough money to buy your way in. And so, especially with 2005, the purchase by the Glazer family of Manchester United and leveraged buyout, essentially using debt against the club to buy the club, which is a very, I mean, financially speaking, very smart, but it has meant that, Hundreds of millions of pounds have gone out of that club, you know, into debt repayments that was that, that was taken out to buy the club in the first place. Um, but, you know, American owners saw English football especially, but European football in general as massively undervalued because they have this thing called merit. They have this thing called promotion relegation. I mean, football's always, always been an unequal game. You know, the richest have always, whoever's got the highest wage bill. And that's usually been determined by historical factors, the size of your stadium, the amount of money that you can bring in through the gate. Um, now that that's completely changed. It doesn't really matter about the size of your stadium anymore. It matters about your commercial pe- potential, your, you know, how much leverage you have with broadcasters. And um, so Americans have come in and they've brought this this with them, this idea, look, you can you can have this. You can have this system where you have a super, super league, build it on the kind of foundations of what you have in the NFL, or certainly parts of it, the kind of the most egregious parts of it, because some of it, like they didn't want to bring in um, the idea of a draft system, for instance, which is almost socialism amongst American sports, where, you know, the worst team suddenly gets a pick of the best players. They didn't want that aspect of it. They just wanted the clothes shop keep the revenues within the big clubs and to hell with everybody else. And that's very much the idea of that. Although, you know, um, American owners only made up about, uh, I think it was a third of the Super League uh, clubs that broke away. You know, that that feeling has been preeminent really since American owners came in. And whether the, the, the rest of the owners who've come from China, sovereign wealth funds and, and sovereign wealth in the Middle East, um, uh, Asia, if you look at where you know owners that came from Thailand in particular, they've all, they've all signed on to that being the most the best way of protecting their their um, their their investment. So it's weird. I wrote this book in two thousand and seventeen or two thousand sixteen to two thousand seventeen, and that was it. It was like this is the direction of travel. This will happen, and this was their first attempt at it. The first clumsy attempt up until now. The threat of the Super League has been used by the big clubs to extract even more. Um, value and extract even more favourable terms. I mean, even as this was happening, UEFA was agreeing for the Champions League to ha- to be restructured that would allow two legacy places 
for clubs that didn't make it but had a good record in the past. So, um, so this is the direction of travel. No, they they fumbled it. They fucked it up. Um, they will be back. And so this is this is this is a battle that this is a battle that's been won and not a war. What was the reason for it happening now, though? Was it was it partly to do with the pandemic? Because you know, I sort of read that so much money has been lost by the mm. industry over the past year. Um, even though a lot of football matches have still happened, especially in the last six months, or, or were there sort of other reasons as to why they thought now is the moment to kind of, uh, you know, have a go at this? Well, there's t- there's two for me. There's two reasons. One of them, COVID, absolutely has focused people's minds. Clubs like Real Madrid, clubs like Barcelona, clubs like Inter Milan, who haven't paid their, they've just won the Scudetto in Serie A and they haven't paid the wages of the players since January I think the last time that I read um, you know these clubs are in a lot these clubs are in a lot of financial trouble because of Covid and they've been hit hard and the problem with football as well is that there's no, there's no meat in the business right Barcelona might generate a billion you know euros a year in revenue which is insane or a billion and a half I can't remember what the exact figure is but you know huge numbers Almost all of that goes out of out of the door in wages and agents fees. So the actual profit that any football clubs make are, are minuscule. I think there's a David Gold, the writer David Goldblatt compared. You know, the average high street Tesco's would actually make more of a profit yearly than a, than a football club would make. That's not where the value that's, is in a lot of clubs. Yeah. yeah, that's not where the value is. A lot the value in a lot of these clubs comes from asset appreciation. So you buy the asset, you 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 maintain it, and at the end of it, you have something that you can sell for three, four times. You know, it's like the London property market in a way. So so COVID had massively hit some of these big teams. So it's no surprise that the club that was leading this was Real Madrid and it's President Florentino Perez, who, if you see what he's been saying, it's like, this isn't going away. This is coming back. So COVID hit the bottom line, even broadcasting contracts in the UK, uh, sorry, with the English Premier League, a premium was taken off because the fans weren't in the stadium. So, you know, their broadcasting revenue down, their game day receipts are down. So, you know, there is going to be a financial correction in the market. So COVID definitely played its role. But there's also, I mean, if you've read um, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, you know, the idea that a good global crisis should never be uh, should never be underexploited. And so, yeah, you know, the owners of, I mean, especially if you look at AC Milan, is owned by, um, you know, uh, Elliott Management, you know, which is a vulture fund, essentially a company that goes around buying uh, sovereign debt from distressed countries like Argentina, uh, like Peru, like uh, Republic of Congo, and but, and squeeze them until they can pay the full amount of the debt, w- whilst basically bankrupting their their health system. So this is the kind of people who are, who are currently you know at the top table trying to decide the direction of travel for football. So something like this happens. You don't have fans in the stadium. You're not going to get, or, or in theory, you're not going to get the kind of um, opposition that you would normally get. Look at Liverpool when they had Hicks and Gillette, the American owners, uh, by the club. It was disastrous. And they were forced out effectively by this, just the sheer weight of fan protests and, and uh, hatred that was kind of poured upon them. This was a way of forcing through something they always wanted to happen. And if not now, when would they get the opportunity to do this without the fans, you know, congregating in huge numbers. And in the end, it turned out that the restrictions weren't hard enough. If If they'd done this a few months earlier, when people weren't really, when we weren't just about to come out of COVID restrictions, especially in the UK, 
then they might have got away with it as Scooby-Doo or the people that Scooby-Doo caught, you know, if it wasn't for <laughs> so you crazy kids. It was just very bad timing. It was just, you know, yeah. and so, you know, they wanted to exploit a crisis and they exploited the crisis just a little bit too late. Wow. I mean, I, I want to ask you about the fans um, and, and the impact in a minute, but I suppose one of the things that it's just so, it's so depressingly evident for, from this, but also uh, in reading your book, it's just so much money in football doesn't really care about the game at all. And, uh, you know, it's something that you talk about in your book, this kind of all started with, with Roman Abramovich and that money that he put into Chelsea wasn't really to do with his absolute love for Chelsea. Well, no one is entirely sure why Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea. Um, he he hasn't bought it for to make money. It's, it's not, it's not, you know, there are easier ways for him to make money than to make money off of Chelsea. You know, that's the level of wealth he has. And so no one really knows why he bought. I mean, there, I think there is, I think there's no doubt that he definitely loves Chelsea. I mean, at least he turns up for the games, which is more than can be said for Sheikh Mansour at Manchester City, who hasn't. Uh, has turned up for one game, I think the first game, and has written to the fans once or twice and may go to the Champions League final in Istanbul, although that's difficult because Turkey is an ally of Qatar. And so whether that's going to be seen as politically possible because of the Gulf, the Gulf conflict that's going on. So, you know, the one thing that is is quite clear about the kind of billionaire class investing in football is that the Americans are at least, it's at least obvious, it's transparent why they're investing in football. They're investing in football because the guys investing in football know that they can extract or they think they can extract value from a global game that has a massive growth potential in America and in Asia. The rest of them, it is absolutely, I mean, apart from Manchester City, which I think is is crystal clear that Manchester City is a political project by Abu Dhabi and especially by the United Arab Emirates uh, to project a, a completely different and to try to rewrite the story around not just Abu Dhabi, but around the country, which has an appalling human rights record, has an appalling record when it comes to um, freedom of speech in the country, has the most repressive social media laws in the world. It is a surveillance state on a par with with China. Yet you wouldn't know any of that because Manchester City provides a very different image to the world about what Abu Dhabi is. Because the Premier League is the is the greatest single advertising hoarding that money can buy. And that's effectively what they've bought. And with a little benefit as well, they've managed to, you know, radicalise the fan base in a, in a way that is kind of, to me, is kind of reminiscent of what, seen, what you've seen with, with the Republican Party and QAnon in that, um, you know, Man City fans genuinely believe there is a conspiracy out against a racist conspiracy to stop that they're the underdogs to stop Manchester City from breaking into the cabal of the big clubs. Um, which is pretty depressing because when you when you look at uh, Manchester City and the people involved in running the football club, who are the same people who are involved in running the country, um, they have their fingers in some pretty nefarious pies. And so, yeah, it's it's the one thing we can be sure of. Pretty much every single billionaire owner is that football is the very last reason they've invested in a football club. It's. I mean, yeah. It's. It's so. It's. It's fascinating though that that you know, fans turned on the European Super League. We haven't, there hasn't really been the same level of protest about like the World Cup in Qatar, which you'd think a lot of people would be quite upset about considering the amount of people who died just putting that together. But fans suddenly switched on the European Mm. Super League and overturned it. And I wonder if that was a surprise because that changed in 24 hours, is it? Pretty much 48 hours at most. Yeah. I mean, I I was really surprised because, I mean, one of the things that I wrote in the Billionaires Club, and I suppose... 
you know, as much as it's a story about the billionaires, I knew I'd never be able to speak to any of the billionaires because they don't need to speak to the press. I mean, Abramovich hasn't given an interview in 10 years and I don't think, you know, Sheikh Mansour's ever given an interview and, you know, Cronky's known as Silent Stan because he never speaks. So part of it was speaking to the people who have lost, right? When these guys have made their money and it's mainly always men, although Stan Cronky actually makes his, or got super rich because he married into the Walton family. Uh, who own Walmart and big Republican donors in the US. So actually his wife had made him part of the super rich. Um, so when I was writing this book, I, wanted, I, was, it was, I was writing about the kind of people who have been left behind. So in many cases, the fans who campaigned to stop the St. Louis Rams from being moved back to LA, which was a big thing that Cronky owns the St. Louis Rams in the NFL. And he moved it because he could get more money and more tax benefits from moving to, to the, to the Rams and the fans were left bereft. And, you know, it was often the fans that, that tried and, and you know, agitated against and campaigned and they, they often lost out. And so I often felt that there's very little that fans could do, even though my recent book about ultras, 1312, shows that sometimes fans can make a difference. But in English football, it's so difficult because there's so little space to organise within football. Fans have been priced out. They're policed out of the game if you have if you have a banner that has any kind of political message, then you're likely to get thrown out. There could be a banning order. Often fans are treated because the the offence has happened around a football match. The offence is much worse. So you so you could you could do something as a football fan that would get you a, a much worse banning order, or a, 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 even an order to that will stop you from leaving the country in some in some respects. So then this happens, and this very organic protest movement emerges out of it which you know i mean there's there there, there are protests at chelsea there are protests at arsenal there are protesters at, at manchester united and you know one of the one of the biggest watched most watched games in world football manchester united versus liverpool gets called off and the message everybody around the world who watches football this massive billboard the biggest billboard in the world suddenly is it's not selling your state. It's not selling your product. It's not selling you. It's selling the idea that there is a groundswell of fans who are not going to accept this. And it's very damaging for the owners. I thought they were Teflon. I thought they didn't care about this anymore, but it turns out that there is a level of uh, hatred that they're not willing to put up with. And, and this was it. And it was, I was very happy to see it because it is about time because, you know, the billionaire class, control you know can, can subvert politics as it does in the u.s super PACs. you know it can um it has an out you know it owns media companies and so can you know you have freedom of the speech but really it's freedom of the speech for the people who own who own newspapers so to to see the little people to see the fans that have been r- ridden roughshod by owners and and premier league regulators and uefa and fifa and seeing them fight back like this it was it's amazing and um i didn't think i'd see it and i hope it's just the start of it one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we'll be back with James in a minute. But first. Election analysis. Election analysis. Electel analysis. Elexi diamysis. Electi on analysis. Election analysis, election, spamalysis, election, analysis, election, spamalysis, election, analysis, sausages. The nice thing about elections is that if you like, you can tell your own tale about how it went. Your party definitely did well if you only look at the bits they did well in, and they definitely did very badly if you ignore all the areas where they didn't. It's definitely to do with voters rising against progressive politics, as long as you ignore all the areas where it absolutely wasn't. People only vote for candidates called Steve if you don't pay attention to anyone who won that absolutely wasn't called Steve. And so, with last week's elections, there were a lot of stories in the news about how it was a victory for the Conservatives, a big loss for Labour, and oh my god, who are this new party, the Greens, we didn't even know about them before, where'd they come from? What? That sort of thing. The reality is, each and every area has its own reasons and issues as to why votes went a certain way, because it turns out that everyone's an individual, you know, apart from the sheeple who need to wake up but also not be woke. God, this is confusing. I mean, take Hartlepool. The Conservatives took 15,529 votes, beating Labour in second place, who got only just half of that. And that's some gains right there, you want to be careful with them. It might seem like a shock victory, but in 2019, when Labour won the seat, the Labour candidate had over 15,464 votes. The Conservative candidate had 11,869 and the Brexit party had over 10,000. So with the Brexit party gone, or rather reformed, and choosing a candidate called John Prescott in the hope it might confuse people, they only got a measly 368 votes. So them 10,235 voters got to go somewhere else. And it seems most went to the Conservatives rather than the pro-Remain completely unsuitable candidate Labour shoved into the race. With the exception of 2017, the Labour vote in the area has been half of what it was in 2001. The area has an ageing population with younger voters tending to leave elsewhere for work, which is a shame as according to dizzy vacuum bag Nadine Dorries, the Conservatives will now bring 180,000 jobs to the area, so as there's only 70,032 people there, everyone can have several each. For the by-election, loads of people didn't turn up as well. The turnout was 11,000 less in 2019 at only 42% of voters, which is really shoddy. So actually, the Conservatives didn't as much gain support as Labour made people think, ah, oh, what's the fucking point? I'll just stay in bed. What hasn't been mentioned much is that independent candidate Sam Lee, a local sports journalist who's sick of party politics and wanted to represent the local area properly, came third in Hartlepool with no party support, very little coverage and no big donors behind her. She beat the Lib Dems, Reform UK and the Greens by miles with nearly 3,000 votes, so 
The real story seems to be that no one's happy with any of it. Most people couldn't even be bothered to leave their homes to vote. And the Conservatives only win because their voters trot out every bloody time because it means they might get to run over a cyclist on the way or laugh at a homeless person, probably. And after having Labour MPs for the past two decades, I guess people there just wanted a change because, hey, a change is as good as a rest. And with a Conservative MP who will likely absolutely decimate the area of anything else to do, there'll be loads of time for resting. The overall story of the elections is that incumbent parties won because it's been a time of crisis and the last thing anyone wants after a turbulent year is more change. I mean, nothing would be more reassuring in this new normal than knowing the Conservatives have a big majority to continue to make things as awful as they used to be. Ah, certainty. But in the English local elections, there was lots of change, as seen by the losses to Conservatives in what's known as the Blue Wall. No, they didn't lose seats in a dentist waiting room in the 90s. What I mean is they lost councillors in Tunbridge Wells, Surrey and Oxfordshire, and Labour gained councils in Chipping Norton and Canterbury. The Lib Dems also took Tory seats in West Sussex, Surrey and Cambridge, and the Greens took some in Kent. This is possibly due to people leaving London due to rising costs and moving further out. It could also be post-Brexit retaliation, especially in areas like Kent, that have seen their Garden of England turn into a super besides Lorry Park like it's a song by Joni Mitchell. Or maybe they just all got the Covid vaccine and Bill Gates reprogrammed them all using the nanochips. I don't entirely know, but it's a definite change. And so, as the Conservatives now take the North, the South may be ripe for further gains by the other parties in a general election if Labour don't keep insisting that that entire area of the woke elite are not working people and focus all their policies on having the union flag tattooed onto their faces and shouting tea at people. The Green Party of England and Wales gained 80 seats in the local elections, that is, not like a recycling furniture centre, but they totes do that too because that's their jam. And while 80 seats isn't massive compared to the Tories or Labour, it's a quite a big increase for them. I mean, the last time Greens had such a massive increase in votes was in 2015 in the general election, which, if you remember, was a year where left-wing voters chose not to vote Labour as they were selling mugs with immigration policies on for, I don't know, people who really want you to know how they like their coffee. And they also had Rachel Reeves telling people they'd cut benefits even harder, so nice to know they're trying that tactic again, I'm sure it won't fail another time. These wins for Greens this time could potentially mean that they actually get some airtime on political programmes now and aren't just classed as other, which is what happens to a lot of them, many other smaller parties and independents. Basically, the Greens get treated in politics, how people from any ethnicity the government don't understand get treated in life. So hopefully that means that the Greens might get a little bit more airtime, but I still bet human long drop Nigel Farage gets on telly way more than them despite not even being in a party anymore. The Scottish elections mean Holyrood now is a majority of pro-independence parties with 64 SNP, MSPs and 8 Greens. Though sadly for no one, the Toad King Alex Salmond's party, Alba, won absolutely zero. But hey, nothing more pro-independence than letting the other parties do their own thing, right? It means while a second independence referendum won't happen immediately, especially due to Rona, it's going to be hard for Westminster to avoid talking about it, and current polls suggest it would be a very close 50-50 split if there was a vote. But whatever happens, it's yet again clear that Scottish voters want to have a different political system to England, and honestly, who can blame them? I think they should just start drilling a massive moat under Gretna Green and quietly float off towards Scandinavia. I reckon it'd be weeks before Johnson even noticed. The thing that isn't being talked about much is why the Conservatives keep getting so many bloody seats, despite the fact that, you know, they've let an awful lot of people die and made doctors wear bin bags. And while you can automatically suppose it, it's just because the public bloody love Johnson, looking like he's woken up in a hedge after trying to shag a farmyard animal, and oh, he said something racist in Latin while handing his best friend half of the NHS. Hilarious. But there's more to it than that, though. I mean, for a start, spending on campaigning. We don't have the figures yet for last week's election, but in 2019, the Conservatives received £19.4 million in donations 
donations and spent £16 million on their campaign. In comparison, Labour got £5.4 million in donations and the Green Party got £200,000. That's a big difference that means the Conservatives can dominate social media adverts and billboards while the Greens at best can probably get everyone involved some nice crisps. But, I mean, everyone does love crisps. Secondly, the first-past-the-post system and the boundary lines mostly benefit the Conservatives, with them winning 60% of the votes in Harlow, but getting 92% of the seats. In Nuneaton and Bedworth this time round, they got 58% of the vote and 88% of the seats. In the same area, Labour and Greens got a combined 40% of the vote and just 12% of the seats. This is why the Conservatives won't ever push for proportional representation, as they much prefer a system, like with all their policies, where a small percentage of the people get a much larger share of everything. Obviously, the same system does benefit Labour in certain areas too, but the fact is, it consistently works against smaller parties and keeps us stuck in a shitty two-party system where one has vast amounts more money to play with. If the government bring in first-past-the-post for mayoral elections too, it could see them winning a greater share of those posts as well, and voter ID would vastly stop Labour voters from voting over Conservatives. In 2019, there were only four convictions for voter fraud and two cautions, and that was it, but trials for voter ID stopped 700 people from being able to vote across 10 areas. Based on the 2017 general election, a much larger majority of Labour votes compared to Conservatives didn't have a driving licence, which I'm surprised about, as I thought most Conservatives had chauffeurs and so wouldn't bother. What I'm saying is it is a much harder race for everyone else, pretty much like every area of society thanks to the Conservatives. So, the good news I suppose is that almost half of all Conservative voters are 65 or older, with the average age increasing by a year, well, every year. So the long game is to just wait till they've all died out. Though sadly, because they'll all have private healthcare, they'll probably outlive the rest of us. There was actually tons of good news in this election though. Two SNP MSPs are the first women of colour to be elected to Scottish Parliament and another is the first permanent wheelchair user in Hollywood, which is brilliant. The first Romanian councillor was elected in the UK for Cambridgeshire County Council, running as a Labour candidate. And what if Groot dried out in the sun for too long, Lawrence Fox lost his £10,000 deposit because he didn't get enough votes for London Mayor, which makes the fact he called his party reclaim even funnier. So, you know, it's not all bad at all. And now, back to James. It was absolutely incredible just the fact that they, they uh, cancelled well, or delayed the Man U Liverpool match on Sunday. And the amount of money that must have lost both of the mm. teams is uh, is bonkers. I, I wondered, <clears throat> is that a sign that it can never return to being a, a people's game? Because there's obviously so much money in football now that to be able to buy the billionaires out would be pretty hard for any community or any kind of smaller business to do it'd have to be a really organized effort um and i know you mentioned earlier the 50 plus one rule that they've got mm. in germany is that a sort of thing that we could ever see in in english football do you think i mean when i was writing um one three one two among the ultras which is you know about ultras around the world what was amazing was seeing how the ultras in germany campaigning to keep this and what having 50 plus one does and just so you readers uh, listeners already know 50 plus one is a system whereby um and it was set up in 1990, end of the 90s, 1998, I think, which allowed, because before then, German football was, German football was the last league, I think, in Europe to professionalise, maybe Switzerland, but one of the last major leagues to professionalise. And so clubs were effectively membership organisations. And so at one, at some point, you know, the powers that be thought, well, look, we need to have some money in football. We've got to have some investors. I mean, look what's happening in, in the Premier League in England. You know, we need to, and so they said, okay, well, we'll let some in. We'll bring in this 50 plus one rule, which means that membership organizations will will always control 51% or 51 
out of 100 of the shares in an organisation, which means that they will have the ultimate say over what happens in a football club. So 49% of a, of a club or parts of a club could be sold. There'll be some exemptions. So I think it was Wolfsburg because it was a, a, always a company-owned team. It was VW and Bayer Leverkusen, the Bayer Pharmaceutical. They're, they're workers' teams. They got an exemption. Um you had Hoffenheim managed to get an exemption because there's a rule. If you show that you've invested 20 years, put 20 years worth of investment into the team, then you've earned the right to, to kind of own the, own, own the full kind of amount of the club. Some of them, RB Leipzig, for instance, have got around it uh, by bending the rules and they've become, Leipzig has become a hate figure within, within German football. But because of this um, very democratic structure that they have, Fan groups are so powerful that they can actually change people's minds. So the German league brought in Monday night football and the fan groups didn't like that because it meant that, well, if you've got a job, Germany is a big country. It means that you have to take Tuesday off work. It's very expensive. Like this is not, this is not a rule for working people that go to the games. This is for people who watch it on television. So they had massive protests. They would, and they were very clever about their protests. I mean, there was one where, they would throw uh, a certain minute that everybody would throw tennis balls onto the pitch. So if you imagine like a, thousands of tennis balls getting <laughs> thrown onto the pitch, it got, you know, the match had to be stopped so the tennis ball could be cleared off. And it's a, it was a very, it was a very clear and very uh, clever way of making a point. And so what happens Monday night football gets canceled when ticket prices rise, their protest ticket rises, get, get ticket price rises, get canceled. So it shows there is a model in a in a wealthy European country that has a very strong football league. I know that Bayern Munich do uh, dominate, but still, in terms of the fan experience, it is much cheaper. You can still stand at games. You can drink beer in a game. You are not treated like you are a potential security risk at all times. You're treated like an adult. Um, the, the, the fan experience in, in Germany is modern and it treats you like an adult. And that's because the fans have fought to keep it that way. And if... Germany can have it. I don't see there's any reason why we can't have it. Now, I know it'd be very difficult to bring something like 50 plus one in because you're forcing, you'd have to force some of the richest people in the world to give up stakes. But a 50 plus one method going forward um, deals with a lot of the major problems within English football. One of them is state ownership. The state ownership of Manchester City has completely subverted uh, the economics of, of the game to the point where UEFA had to bring in a system of governance called financial fair play to try to restrict, um, you know, unrestricted spending. It also shows that the power of a state means that it's very difficult to regulate a state because they have more power than any regulator can ever have. It's one of the, I, I, I suspect it's one of the reasons why ultimately um, the public investment fund, the PIF, which is the investment arm of the Saudi state was prevented from buying Newcastle United because the ultimate beneficial owner would be Mohammed bin Salman, a guy with blood on his hands from the Jamal Khashoggi killing, but also someone who, how are you going to regulate a man like that, one of the most powerful and ruthless men in the world? As a football regulator, he can't. So bringing in 50 plus one in future prevents that because no billionaire wants to come in and own 49% of anything. And that's why they haven't invested massively in in German football because they just don't have the control from their investment. Um, I don't have all the answers, but I, well, I do have the answer. 50 plus one is the answer. If we want football to look uh, um, 
and feel like football should. 50 plus one gives fans, um, it's the it's the sweet spot between fans having a kind of game that they can afford to go to, but also being kind of a modern family-friendly experience that still kind of gets the best of, of, of the modern investment in football. Um, how we get there is going to be, it would be quite difficult. But if it isn't now, then it will never happen. We have a unique moment in history to try to recalibrate what the game is and stop it becoming what what the inevitable path down which it was going, which was this European Super League and then below it, decay and atrophy, which I think is what would have happened if if, if this is allowed to go ahead. I mean, it's one of the things, it sounds brilliant, but I can you see the British government ever going along with that, ever sort of enforcing regulation on a game like football, when especially with... You know, there's so many connections to do with Russian influence and everything else that's come through with a lot of the people who own mm. a lot of the football clubs now um, or a lot of the kind of yeah. billionaire investors. Would there be any interest or any benefits to the British government in, in kind of forcing in regulation laws like this? I mean, because they got very involved in the European Super League. And even yeah. though Johnson might, or, or at least the sort of DCMS might have uh, had chats about it going ahead before it did and changed their minds, mm. it obviously became very unpopular and they thought it was best to, to be seen against it. I mean, this is a massive vote winner for them. And that's why they jumped on it. They saw that this is, there's no, there's, you know, they have a, uh, anytime there's a political crisis, something like this comes in on the one hand, it's great bashing football, right? Cause they love bashing football. They love bashing rich footballers. You know, they did that during COVID. What are footballers doing? Yeah. And then Marcus Rashford. Like, <laughs> what the hell, what the hell's the football got 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 to do with it? You know, yeah. the 125,000 dead, like th- concentrate on that, you know? Um, so, so it was, it, it was an absolute no brainer to wade into it, but if but genuine reform, fan led reform, I mean, it's going to play very well with, with red wall voters. There's no doubt about it. This is a very, very popular issue um, that is that is above party politics, and can they? I think, I think Boris Johnson can see that. Can see that it's a that it's a vote winner. Um, they have shown in the part. I mean, or certainly they've spoken about certain policies where the government would have to get involved. Like no way you'd expect a Thatcherite government to have made, you know, to to, to get involved in the in the running of a of. of of a private business in any way, but this kind of level of regulation, I think is, is a vote winner for him. And I don't see at the same time, if you see kind of the rhetoric against China uh, to a certain expense of Russia, um, there's also never a better time to take on those entrenched interests in, in English football as well. So, I mean, you've got to remember that someone like Roman Abramovich, you know, currently can't work in Britain because, the previous government under Theresa May re- refused his or delayed his work permit and then he reduced it, uh, he withdrew the application and then went to um, to Israel because he made Aliyah there and now he's an Israeli citizen. So there is, you know, th- there seems to be a feeling that he wants to be back and wants to be able to come back and he's still intimately involved in Chelsea. And so th- these kind of reforms... There may be some space. It may not be 50 plus one. Um, it may be 75 plus 25 or whatever way they're going to do it. But it certainly can't stay the way it is. And so there will be, I hope, some positive re- movements towards a greater fan participation. And one of the big things that has to happen is is the price of football. Um, you know, if one of the main reasons why 
this is allowed to happen is that the economics of football are such that kind of the fan, the money that comes through the turnstiles doesn't matter anymore. Certainly is a, is a very small slither of what they earn from broadcasting revenue and commercial revenue. Because a few years ago that, that changed match day revenue had always been the biggest uh, revenue stream for a club. And then about 15 years ago, that was replaced by broadcasting and then massive commercial revenue. So, um, then, then it's time to to reduce ticket prices so that you can get young people because football's got a massive demographic problem as well. Is that the the, the average age of people who have a season ticket because it's so expensive is is uh, you know in in its forties and that's usually because it's the same people that had season tickets before and they've grown up with football and grown their wealth through football. Young people just cannot afford to go to football matches and um, and that's what you want to see. You want to see that culture of attendance and culture of community in football starting from a very young age and that that has to be addressed at the same time yeah absolutely i i don't know anyone's been able to afford a season ticket for a very long time it's really mm. it's appalling it's so expensive a bit like property as you mentioned it before compared it to the property market mm. it's the two areas that just people of a certain age can't get into um but it's it's very nice to know that there is maybe some benefits to a populist kind of government that <laughs> do want to do things that are popular in some way so that's good um, don't get me wrong i mean this is the probably the most corrupt actually i mean i was gonna say corrupt government since the last tory government but i mean i still remember <laughs> cash for questions and um yeah. and hamilton and, and all that kind of stuff and and uh al-fayed so but it's, it's not far off i mean it's just not cash and envelope it's it's contracts and government tenders and and all sorts of dodgy stuff so it's you know i guess a fucked clock tells the right time twice a day right and suppose this is (laughs) one of the times that this broken clock has told the correct time Yep, yep, brilliant. Uh, that's a wonderful expression. Uh, definitely need to keep that. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you, James. I really appreciate you having the time, especially when you've been uh, obviously very busy talking about this a lot over the last couple of weeks. Um, and, and the last question I want to ask you is something that I ask all the guests on this, which is simply, uh, apart from yourself uh, and all of your books, um, are there any other writers' sites or podcasts that you'd recommend listeners check out for, specifically sort of the politics of football, uh, I suppose? Um, I would... Um, oh, who would I... Who would I recommend? I mean, David Conn is a very good writer for The Guardian. Um, Manchester City fan as well. So he's quite conflicted in terms of like he's a, you know, he's seen Manchester City come through the uh, the lean years. They're in the third tier once. And he's written a lot about, about uh, he's very good on human rights and, and football and his relationship. There's, he wrote a book called Richer Than God which is really good about about growing up as a city fan and then and then and then their club becoming literally the richest club in the world. So I'd recommend him as a as a very good starting place for that. I would also follow uh, Tarek Panjar, journalist on the New York Times and uh, and a colleague of sometime colleague of mine who does a lot of great uh, sleuthing around the finances of football. Um, and uh, yeah, well, I also if I could get in a plug, I'd also recommend Delayed Gratification, which is a magazine I write for, which is uh, the world's first slow journalism magazine. So there'll be a big uh, story looking in retrospect at the months that have passed in that in the next issue. So we always look back at the the three months that have passed and look at the big stories that have broken um, and then faded away. And which ones, you know, should have we should we should still be thinking about. Big thanks to James for having time to chat in what has been a pretty busy few weeks for him. Um, you can find James on Twitter at James uh, Peter, which is P-I-O-T-R. And you can find all his books at all bookshops, regardless of their goodness. But do check out The Billionaires Club, which is a fascinating insight into all the super rich people that have bought all the football. And Among the Ultras, which is his most recent book about the extreme political footy fans movement around the world. Uh, and I will, of course, pop links to all of them in the podcast blurb and website too. 
What other topics do you want to hear someone talk about, but specifically on this podcast, you know, like not online or down the calf? I know no one can go down the calf at the moment, but when they do again, like next week or whatever, chat's going to be on fire, isn't it? You know what I mean? Talking about eggs and stuff. But what subjects do you want to hear on this show? Let me know at Parbarbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could fail to send anything and blame someone else instead while pretending that's some sort of clever way to get people to like you. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? Ah, that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Another week of political shittery wrapped up in jokes and swears just for you because otherwise I'd have to shout it at people in the park. If you like any of this, even just the letters in the podcast title or the feeling it gives you as you delete it from your podcast app, then please do tell others to give it a whiz, review the show on whichever podcast platform you reside at and donate to the Kofi, Patreon or ACAST supporter button if you can. Then I can use that tiny bit of money to persuade the elite class that I'm one of them as I jangle the change in my pockets while declaring how much I miss the opera and saying the word consultant. Much obliged to Acast, my brother last sceptic, Cat Day and the late great Katie Coxell. You're already very missed. This will be back next week when Labour announce their latest policy will involve standing around at the end of the bar where it clearly states there's no service there and waiting till someone sees them and takes their order. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Hugging Butts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.